there's a lot of uncertainty in, in health spending. Empirically, we found, whether it's in China or in the U.S., that 10% of the population in a typical year will end up consuming 60% of health spending. And we don't know who are the 10%. We don't know how much money they will need. So insurance becomes an important way of pooling resources from everybody. So when people need care, then it could be paid for them. Instead of one individual paying for a health event when that happens, Insurance is a mechanism that replaces that with small, regular, prepaid amounts that pool money together that can be used for a group of people when an individual within the group has an illness. And it's also a way of enabling those who can afford to pay more to contribute at higher levels. The, the underlying premise should be that you know, health is a human right and that people should be able to access the health care that they need without financial hardship. So insurance is one mechanism to enable that to happen. Welcome back, listeners, to the show, Advancing Health Systems in Low- and Middle-Income Countries. This podcast miniseries is part of the HFG Project, the Health Finance and Governance Project, and you can learn more about that project in episode zero. But just know that the goal of the project is to strengthen health systems, especially in low- and middle-income countries around the world. My name is Kirby Kreider, and I'll be your host yet again. I work on the HFG project. And I've said this in the past, but I just want to reiterate that I am delighted, honored, and I feel like it's a privilege to be here talking to you. We've been watching play counts on the previous episodes, Keep Growing, and there's people listening from all over the world, which is really, really cool to see. If you're someone who's interested in achieving universal health coverage, you can appreciate that one of the biggest barriers to access is high out-of-pocket spending. This is something we talked about in our first episode on domestic resource mobilization, where we discussed that the high cost of healthcare is a leading cause of bankruptcy. And health insurance, the topic of this episode, is one approach countries are implementing to address this issue. Insurance schemes seek to pool financial risk, reducing the overall financial burden on individuals while improving access to those critical healthcare services that we want and need. In this episode, we're gonna hear from experts about different models that are being implemented around the world, some challenges to setting up a health insurance scheme in a low and middle income country, because they are different than in higher income countries. And we'll learn a bit too about what approaches some countries are using to make these schemes financially sustainable. I spoke with Abdo Yazbek, who you heard at the beginning of this episode, along with Gina Holtz, who I'll introduce later. Abdo Yazbek is a senior economics advisor on the HFG project and works for Apt Associates. And he described four major insurance models that exist around the world and gave us a historical perspective. The first one that uh, almost everybody's familiar with is the Bismarck model, or what's now being called social health insurance. And that's a situation where money is earmarked from labor tax. So anybody who works, a percentage of their salary and a percentage of what the employer pays goes into a fund that's used for healthcare services. That's called social health insurance or the Bismarck model. Uh, and that's, for example, the most obvious countries are Germany or France, that's a 
well-developed countries. It's also all over Latin America and increasingly in Eastern Europe, and now starting to show itself in Asia as well. And even some African countries are interested in it. The second model is more of the British or Canadian model, and it's called the um, a beverage model named after Lord Beverage. Uh, and this came after World War II, where the British wanted to make sure society, which was poor, impoverished because of the war, had basic services. Health was one of the more important services. So there's not a standard insurance, but everybody is covered. So they are insured in a way, but they don't pay into it. And there's no labor tax. It's overall government revenue that pays for it. And in, in this model, usually the government is in charge of funding it. And in many cases, even delivering services. So those are the two largest dominant models, the, the public financing model and the labor tax financing model. So Abdo has described two health insurance models at this point. The first one is the Bismarck model, and it involves funds collected for health insurance from payroll taxes. The second is the beverage model, in which funds come from general tax revenue. In both cases, essentially everyone is covered. When I spoke with Abdo, he also described a third model, which is one that some high-income countries have tried, in which they establish a market of mandatory private or commercial health insurance and combine that with some form of government subsidy. You might recognize many features of this in the U.S. healthcare system. The U.S.-based insurance system, which is has elements of the beverage in which there is a uh, labor relationship. So in the United States, uh, insurance is a, an employer responsibility. Uh, and so most of us get our insurance because we work in a certain place. And so part of our salaries are taken out. Part of the employer payment gets spent into, into an insurance, but it's labor-linked. So what happens with that is that those who are outside labor, then they need a different way to be covered. Um, it's not necessarily the most efficient or equitable health system because it leaves a lot of people outside. And so government has to jump in. The fourth model, which is the dominant, dominant in low-income countries, which is zero insurance, which is you pay when you ask for service or when you need the service. It's a fee for service. It's an out-of-pocket spending it means the 10% who need 60% of health spending, 10% of population who will need it at any point in time will face amazingly high medical bills, which they may not be able to use. So you end up with two outcomes. Both are terrible. You either borrow money to pay, you impoverish yourself, or you can't even borrow enough so you don't get care at all. And both are terrible outcomes. And, and so the fourth model, which is really the default model, which is no insurance, no pooling, no public funding, it's basically we pay when we need it, and it's a terrible way of organizing healthcare financing. So the fourth model that's not really a model is a big reason why many low and middle income countries are seeking out new health insurance models. I found it really interesting to be able to put a name to the different models that I've witnessed here in the US and seen overseas as well. And one thing I took away from the conversation with Abdo is that different countries have tended towards these different models and different combinations of these models for a variety of different reasons. Some of them are economic, some might be political, and some are likely cultural too. So we've got the historical and the global perspective, but let's consider low and middle income countries specifically, the subject of this podcast. Something that makes low and middle income countries different than higher income countries is the presence and the ubiquity of the informal worker. Adam Kuhn is a health researcher on the HFG project. 
and I spoke with him about a recent study he worked on looking at the informal workforce in low and middle income countries. Informality, you might ask, like, why does that matter at all? Why do you care if somebody's informal? If they're not paying taxes, it's very difficult to then direct that money into some sort of national health insurance. They're not in the system administratively. But also, um, if people are if people are not in the workforce, it's very difficult to know where they are, who they are, what their family size is. Um, they they can oftentimes be invisible. So some of the people that work but are informal are farmers, uh, market vendors, day laborers for like construction, transport workers, um, taxis, either rickshaws, um, as well as uh, people that do you know other types of hidden kind of uh, of work. Um, so what we found, which was striking, is that um, in the EPCMD countries, these EPCMD countries that Adam refers to are 25 countries that are prioritized for assistance by USAID because they represent more than two-thirds of maternal and child deaths around the world. Roughly 70% of the labor force is informal. Um, so this is much higher than in the general pool of low and middle income countries. And in some countries where we look, you know, like Madagascar, over 95% of the population is informal. Um, and even some uh, upper middle income EPCMD countries uh, like Indonesia still have a considerably large informal sector. So this begs the question of like, how useful is that characterization? It's important to think about informal workers in the context of low and middle income countries. You can't automatically tax informal workers because they're not receiving the kind of traditional paycheck that we might think of here in the US. But as we'll see in our two country examples, low and middle income countries around the world are implementing health insurance schemes. So the question is, how are they doing it? I'd like to start by sharing with you what's been happening in Ghana. Ghana's National Health Insurance Scheme, or NHIS, is considered one of the most ambitious plans in Africa for achieving universal health coverage. It started in 2003, and it has successfully expanded to cover about 40% of the population by 2014. And it's expanded even further since then. Here's Gina Holtz. She's a senior health economist at Apt Associates working on the HFG project. You heard her at the beginning of this episode right after Abdo's comments. And Gina will introduce us to the case study of Ghana. Ghana is a great example of a country that seized a political moment to introduce a national health insurance scheme. Ghana previously had sort of a history of people paying out of pocket for their services, and they called that cash and carry. It was very unpopular because it created hardship for people, and it particularly was hard for people who were poor. To learn a little bit more about Ghana's national health insurance scheme, I talked to Nathan Blanchett. He's also a senior health economist, and he works for Results for Development as part of the HFG project. The enactment of the NHIS was very much a, a result and, and heavily influenced by this uh, competition between two major parties, the NPP and the NDC. So the NPP ran on a campaign in the 2000 election of abolishing this this user fee based, this cash and carry program that was so controversial. Um, and they said it would, they would abolish it and they won that election. That was the first time in Ghana's most recent history since, their, um, since the early 90s 
that there was a changeover in power. So that party came in, and I think there was a lot of pressure for them to deliver on that campaign promise before the next election in 2004. Ghana has since undergone um, two more peaceful, democratic uh, turnovers of, of power. So how did Ghana do this? There was clearly the political will when this new party came into power and ran on national health insurance and abolishing this very unpopular system. But there was also some other things that they did that were very important. Here's Nathan again. They got new sources of funding. They added two and a half percentage points to their value-added tax. It's like a sales tax um, that would go into a dedicated fund for the health insurance scheme. They also got some contributions from their formal sector workers through their social security program. Those two sources uh, have, have made up about uh, 90% or more of the revenues for the scheme. The second thing was that they created one what we health economists call risk pool, meaning that everyone in the country, every Ghanaian who enrolled in this scheme is essentially in the same pool, covered by the same funds, and their risks are able to be shared. Um, they also made their insurance scheme quite comprehensive in its benefits. It is uh, intended to cover 95% of the disease burden, and you can use it anywhere, so it's been portable. So those were some of the things that Ghana did, and, and most would agree really got right as some important foundations. It did help end cash and carry and helped increase utilization of healthcare, including uh, among the poor. They also have had many challenges, and that's part of what partners like the HFG Project have been working with, with Ghanaians on. So their scheme was enacted very quickly, designed very quickly, and it was extremely ambitious. Uh, over the past 15 years, they have faced some pretty serious financial sustainability problems and also some problems with the efficiency of their operations. The major challenge with financial sustainability was that there was never a real careful balancing between the revenues coming in from the taxes that I mentioned and the expenses going out. There was really no controls put in place. There was a sort of limited ability to monitor what providers were submitting uh, claims for. There were no co-payments or anything like that to sort of serve a bit as a check on, on use of services. And utilization has climbed and has uh, outstripped the revenues coming in. Well, they are now in the process of doing various reviews and assessments to revise their benefits package. Uh, they have realized that they, they really want to uh, orient that benefits package more toward primary health care services so that they can reach more people with uh, more cost-effective services. Uh, and they also have realized that there's just a great deal of new capacities, new functions that need to be um, that that need to be run in an insurance setting. And the authority, the National Health Insurance Authority, has been growing its abilities to do that. And one of the biggest things they have worked on is using evidence better. Let's move across the continent to Eastern Africa, to Ethiopia. In 1998, Ethiopia developed a national healthcare financing strategy. 
And this strategy aimed to improve and diversify resource mobilization for healthcare, to ensure equitable and efficient resource allocation and use, and to secure financial protection for its citizens. So working off of this strategy, over the last 20 years, Ethiopia has made impressive progress in strengthening many aspects of its health system. And the country has made remarkable progress in reducing infant and under five mortality rates in recent years. One of the challenges has been with health financing. In 2010 and 2011, per capita health spending was only about $21 per year. And about one third of that was covered by out-of-pocket expenditures, which is very high. These high out-of-pocket costs meant that people often did not seek care for themselves or their families, or when they did seek care, it was financially catastrophic or totally impoverishing. In response to these problems, Ethiopia has adopted and is now rapidly taking to scale what's called Community-Based Health Insurance, or CBHI. Here's Hailu Zululu. He's the HFG country manager for Ethiopia, and he has more on this. Between 2011 and uh, 2013, uh, USAID helped the country to pilot community-based health insurance. It was piloted in uh, certain districts, uh, which is out of close to over 900 districts. And under HFG, we supported government, uh, Ethiopian Health Insurance Agency, to evaluate the pilot program. And the pilot uh, showed important uh, developments in terms of providing financial protection and health service utilization among CDHI members versus uh, the general population. So because of that, the government was uh, convinced that it needs to scale up community-based health insurance. Uh, we helped in developing the scale-up strategy in 2015. And since then, it has been uh, being scaled up. So with this model, community members organize and contribute into a system that pools risk and improves service coverage for everyone. But you might be asking yourself, does this generate enough resources to cover costs? And what about the poorest people? How are they covered? What about the people that can't pay into the scheme? So government is uh, providing financial support to cover uh, for around 10% of uh, the poor households to be enrolled into the community-based health insurance scheme. And so they are members like any other uh, segment of the population who are enrolled in, in the community-based health insurance, and they benefit from the program in terms of financial protection. They don't have any different ID card from other members. They can't be labeled as poor householders because no one knows whether uh, government paid for them or whether they paid uh, out of pocket. They are recognized as uh, community-based health insurance members. You can't implement this type of program at scale unless you have strong government buying, leadership, and commitment. And that commitment includes a financial commitment. The other lesson I would, I would bring is to have the necessary institutional arrangement and capacity. The government established a brand new uh, health insurance agency. It's called Ethiopian Health Insurance Agency. That agency has over 1,000 staff, and it has around 29-30 branch offices throughout the country. And it's leading the community-based health insurance as well. A key to Ethiopia's success is that the government subsidizes CBHI for the poorest 10% of households to make sure they're included in the scheme. And it doesn't differentiate between those receiving subsidies and those who've paid for it themselves. And it's made a significant investment in the Ethiopian Health Insurance Agency to effectively manage the program. How's it doing? 
As of today, approximately 500 districts now are implementing CBHI, which provides access to health services for 19.3 million people. Throughout this episode, I hope you've seen that it's really not about a one-size-fits-all or the one-best system, whether it's the beverage model or the Bismarck model. It's rather about continuing to adjust strategies and being able to and willing to adjust strategies in order to achieve health objectives. It's also about ensuring financial sustainability. Here's Abdo Yazbek one more time. All these systems, it's not about getting them right. It's about getting a system to keep tinkering because stuff will happen. Changes will happen. The population and politics will happen. And so you need to build a robust system to keep adjusting. Bring in more voices so you're protected from it becoming a political issue uh, because the reality is democracy changes the players. And if you keep changing systems with the players at the root, it's a challenge for a sector like health. And if you ignore the others and you tie it too much to one political party, that's what the country chooses to do. You create a high risk of the next government throwing it all out and starting all over. Before we end the episode, I'd like to play one last clip from Catherine Connor, who's the deputy director of the HFG project. Most of the countries we have worked in have taken a very deliberate, intentional approach to to learn and adapt as they as they implement expansion of health insurance. If you look at Europe. How long did it take England, Germany, France to develop and operate this, the health coverage that they have today? It took them more than 100 years. In, in relative terms, what we're seeing happen in Africa and Asia is much faster, frankly, much, much faster. Ghana introduced their health insurance and it got above 75% coverage with, within 10 years. The importance of, the, of a project like ours is that our client, USAID, as, a, as an international donor, they want to see a day when their financial support isn't necessary. And they want to see a day when the countries are running everything on their own and their macroeconomic development has reached a tipping point where they can pretty much fund everything on their own and putting these these systems in place that are you know well developed and well managed and properly financed and reflect the latest knowledge in terms of you know how to be efficient and be equitable etc so these health insurance schemes are 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 huge leap towards that type of self-sufficiency. With those last words from Catherine, I'd like to close out the episode with a thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing, sharing on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to do that. And please give us feedback if you have questions or comments. We'd love to hear from you. Another thank you to Abdo Yazbek, Adam Kuhn, Hailu Zululu, Catherine Connor, Gina Holtz, and Nathan Blanchett for all of their help on this episode. And a special thanks to Jen Leopold from the HFG Project. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for our theme music for this series. And finally, a thank you to the U.S. Agency for International Development for funding the HFG Project. See you next time for our final episode where we'll talk about health governance.